Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15 second skip button. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Perry McCarthy. I'm an ex-Formula One racing driver and I was the original stick on BBC Top Gear. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello and welcome to the latest Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar and sat beside me looking glamorous as ever is... <laughs> Hello, it's Rachel Downey. Hello. <laughs> I do not look glamorous. If anyone could see me now, I do not. But thanks. Yeah, well, that's the joy of audio format. Yeah. We can turn up to our little studio looking as rough as a bear's bottom and nobody will. No, nobody's any the wiser. It's beautiful. In our woolly knits. We are very quite wintry, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it is that it is that season. Lovely season. Now, this week we are bringing you an episode, as you probably heard. You've heard his voice on the intro, and you've probably seen the name on the title. We are talking to Perry McCarthy, F1 driver, Le Mans driver, and the original Mm. Stig from BBC Top Gear back in the early noughties which now feels like an alarmingly, disgracefully long time ago. I still very upsetting. can't get over that the noughties is 20 years ago. I mean, I know we all know that, yeah. but that's crazy. Like, best I, not to think about it. It's, it's so... It's how not, old am I? <laughs> best not to ask. Best not to ask. Oh, gosh. Uh, but yes, this is a really nice conversation. We have already mm. recorded it. We just thought we'd yeah. say a very quick hello as part of our intro, um, but also because Perry and yourself, Rachel, mm. are you, you are friends. Which yeah, is quite exactly. nice. Yeah, yeah. I met him quite a few years ago at a race, Titans. Um, and we, yeah, we hit it off straight away. Uh, shared many a bottle of wine in the evening <laughs> after racing. Um, yeah, great man. And, you know, as you guys, you listeners will, will hear, just he's lived such a great life so far. Mm. And the stories he has and... He yeah never runs out of things to say. Yeah. For as long as I've known him, there's always something new he can share. Wonderful, lovely man. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's dive into that conversation uh, with Perry McCarthy, and then we'll say a quick hello to say a quick goodbye right at the very end as well. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's all. And a big hello to you, Perry McCarthy. Hi. Hi, John. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Perry. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Perry, you joined us um, about three or four weeks ago on our radio show mm. on TalkSport, and that was brilliant. And we thought, because we only had about 10 15 minutes to, to chat on the show we thought it'd be better to get you booked in for a proper chat here on the podcast and we get a huge number of listeners on the podcast each week mm. and many many if not every single one of them will know exactly who you are both for your or either for your motorsport history or of course for wearing that notorious black suit on BBC Top Gear back in the early noughties. Absolutely yeah it was uh it's actually exactly 20, 20 years ago we kicked that off. Wow. Is that when the noughties was? 20 years ago? Yeah, it's 2022, Rach. Oh. Yeah. God, that feels... I, that's mad. Yeah. I mean, I know it is, but when you say the noughties, it still doesn't feel like it's that yeah. long I bet, ago. I bet, you missed, I bet you missed junior school, Rachel, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't born. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about, Perry. <laughs> Right. Do you know what? It's it's funny you reference that, actually, because we get an awful lot of our listeners who are, we've got a great array of ages in our listeners, everything from um, a, a big chunk of kind of mid-30s to mid-40s. There's a, a good chunk who are a lot older, and there's a, a strong chunk who are a lot younger. And in that demographic of 18 years, I think it's like 18 to 20, and then you think about that and you think, oh, yeah, 18 to 20, that's fine. And then we start talking about programmes that were coming out in 2001, 2002, and you realise, oh, my God, they weren't alive. <laughs> so Top Gear, as they know it, is Oh, they're going to love my stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Over their heads, completely. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, uh, fortunately, the stronger demographic, I think, will be uh, of... Uh, yes. Of the, the, the more uh, senior vintage, 35 plus, um, putting myself into that category of senior vintage. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I love talking about Top Gear because, of mm. course, it is a, it, it's a huge topic of interest for people in the automotive space, both from just the interest of liking cars through to many people that work in the industry. Uh, I've got many friends that have been influenced by that period of time when you were involved in Top Gear back in the... Um, early noughties that have then gone on to pursue media careers in filming and in television as a result of watching that show um, and I mean Top Gear as a, as, a, as a subject of interest we've had all sorts of guests on the show previously we've had directors of the show people like Brian Klein we've had writers like Richard Porter we've had Andy Willman uh, the the kind of main brains behind it we've spoken to Clarkson Hammond and May all of whom have given a fantastic insight and it just seems that there is never there's never enough to learn about this bizarre chapter and what ca- what became, or went from, I should say, a tiny little pokey motoring show on the BBC featuring presenters like Noel Edmonds, Quentin Wilson, Vicky mm. Butler-Henderson, to suddenly becoming the most valuable television show for the BBC worldwide. And you were there right at that turning point, that chapter, where it all suddenly became something rather special. Uh, but clearly, I was the catalyst for all that happened. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, um, yes. <laughs> I, th- I think, um, joking to one side, I think 
what happened with the new version of Top Gear when, when we launched it 20 years back is that there was a, a whole bunch of things that collided. And one of the things they, they did, from my opinion, was their, their commitment to the production values and the production budget. So they produced a, a really great show, you know, really high quality. And also the, the genius, of, as you mentioned, of Andy Wilmot and the creative genius of Jeremy as well. Mm. They, they kept finding different ways to bring a motoring show to television and, and you know, make us all interested. Clearly, Stiggy was kind of one component of that, but the way the three of them got on their, their banter and it made the viewer want to be there with them on this adventure. But then they were taking the cars abroad, fantastic shots, fantastic scenery, fantastic grading, editing, music, dialogue. You know, that, that was the thing. It was a whole package. So this wasn't, let's see what we can get away with. They threw the kitchen sink at it. And clearly, of course, that had super results because the show catapulted to being taken by 215 different territories around the world. And the idea of the stick, of course, you know, keeping me secret, mm. um, that that kind of captured the imagination. The uh, the question of who is the stick actually became one of the top ten questions asked on the internet. Mm. Uh, I think I think I was just behind. Is there a god and am I pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> That's like my Google searches. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my really? Most <laughs> Perry, were you surprised with the success of of where the show went and also the stig? Was this did you know going into this that you know it's about to probably, you know, like put you forward into a completely different world of recognition? I I don't think anybody had any idea how big the show was gonna be. Clearly it had been quite a recognized show from years before. So you're kind of thinking, well, okay, you know, it's 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 up there. I've been in the automotive industry for 20 years by then. So you're thinking, okay, it's a good attachment. It's somewhere to go. But this idea of the mystery racing driver, you thought, oh, okay, whatever. We'll we'll give it a go. Um, you know, it was actually at my book launch, um, my autobiography, Flat Out, Flat Broke. Uh, I only mention it. It's going really well at the moment. We uh, sold another copy just last month. <laughs> but um, it, it was it was actually at the book launch that a lot of friends from F1 and TV were there, and Jeremy was there. And it was there that he said, look, I'm going to tell you something. We're bringing Top Gear back on air because it's been off air for quite a while by then. And he said to me, we've got this idea for you. I don't know if I told you this story last time we were together, but uh, he said, we, we've got this idea as a secret racing driver. And as you mentioned, the, the original Stig Me was in black. Mm. And Jeremy said, you're going to be wearing black boots, black overalls, black gloves, a black crash helmet and a black visor. And we're going to call you the gimp. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. And they were pretty serious about it. And I said, look, oh, you know, I've, I've been in motor racing for 20 years by then and nothing remains a secret. Mm. So I didn't want it coming out that I was the gimp, you know? Yeah. And they, they finally took us on board. Exactly. I've seen Pulp Fiction. You know, it's unpleasant. Yeah. And um, so then they, they got the idea and that's when it turned around and they come out with this idea of saying the stig. And I went, cool, count me in. But yes, of course, it's uh, the original question is, I don't think any of us had any idea how big Top Gear was going to be. So it was a great surprise. And it's been super to be part of that 
um, making people smile. Mm. Uh, that's what I enjoy doing, really. Yeah. yeah, I would find it so difficult to be in a public place if someone's talking, and my friends, and they're talking at that time, I wonder who the stig is. Is it this person? Is it this person? Mm. Surely you told someone. You must have done. But it was funny, I used to be down the pub sometimes drinking, and I'd hear people standing next to me saying, who do you think the stig is? And I was thinking, well, you're standing next to me, actually, yeah, mate. I'm like, here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I didn't say anything, not even for free lager. I didn't uh, commit that. And it was, so it was funny that Damon Hill, everybody kind of kept coming up to Damon saying, are you the stig? Oh. And he, he said he was going to get a T-shirt made up saying, I'm not the <clears throat> stig. <laughs> there was a lot of conjecture around who yeah. it was. And a lot of the time with the celebrities that I, I knew quite a few of them would come on the show, but the ones I didn't, inside my crash helmet, I would put on a big French accent, you know, ah. trying to trick them and stumble over my words. The uh, the what vitesse, uh, vitesse uh, you, you say uh, gearbox, we yeah. <laughs> and so so a lot of them were thinking. And then rumors started having it that it was John Lacey who was the stick. Brilliant, yeah. Now the thing is, John's probably worth about hundred million quid, so I can't really see him doing. Yeah, that. <laughs> good point. Very good point. Yeah, I do like. I mean, even even after you'd moved on from the role and. And of course, as we then later discovered, it was Ben Collins that took over. But I remember in that chapter as well, the rumours that went flying around with names that were just like, yeah, come on, actually think about this. The person you're talking about not only is still racing in F1, but they'd be charging, you know, the, the, the sort of premium that could buy a house every single week to be on the show. But it does. Yeah. It builds this mystery, this hype, this excitement. And I think that was such a crucial part to getting people to tune in because suddenly everyone was talking about it. It wasn't just a show about reviewing cars anymore. There was this added mystery to it, this this element of excitement and it was you in that suit which is which it was great i mean the one that you said on that subject the one that used to crack me up was people saying i think it's michael schumacher i think it's michael yes. schumacher yeah. and then of course michael came on the show one time because that's right you know and you know god bless michael let's hope he pulls through but um but i always like michael he's got a good sense of humor and so he came on the show unveiled himself as the stick just for that episode. He had so many people on Twitter saying, I knew it was him yeah, all along. Yeah. And you're thinking, no, Michael's trying to win world championship. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't got time to be in Surrey every Wednesday. <laughs> I still, to this day, find myself having conversations with people going, well, you know, it was it was Schumacher for a while because in 2009 he revealed himself. And I'm like, no, for goodness. That's so brilliant. Just, yeah. But did, did yeah. people on set not know it was you? Like, what, you know, did... I'm guessing cameramen, people like that, knew it was you. Or did you have to no, keep we, it? We, we, we really did keep it quiet. You know, we did a good job of that. I mean, obviously, Jeremy knew it was me. Richard knew it was me. James knew it was me. And to begin with, we had a different presenter rather than James. It was uh, uh, Jason Dorp yeah, uh, who first came in. So the boys knew it was me. And Jeremy would come over from the uh, studios to the track, which is literally a couple of hundred metres away. And ask me about a car sometimes if he had a predetermined opinion on something. And I would say, agree with him or say, no, actually, you're wrong. This is pretty good. Or actually, you're wrong. This is pretty bad. Or agree. You know, we, so we had the chats there. So so he knew it was me. And obviously, Andy Wilman knew it was me. But we did keep it fairly closed. I mean, what we always think is that the end of the first season, when it came out in the Nationals, that it was me, 
I think they fired somebody in the production department who knew it was me. And then they went to the newspaper to get some money to say, we know Stig's Perry. But then we tried to play it down and carry on, you know. But uh, but we did did keep a fairly good handle on it, you know. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Now, I I feel like we're at risk of losing an hour to talking solely about Top Gear. Of course, there's (laughs) so much more to you and your career. Um, So I'd like to kind of go back in time a little bit more if possible and perhaps we'll work our way up to to that point and then we'll jump ahead of it to to see what's been happening since uh, because your career as a as a driver is quite an interesting one starting from yeah I wouldn't say and I hope you'll forgive me for this not the typical entry to F1 as a racing driver a lot of F1 drivers now are uh, the sons of multi 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 millionaires that are bankrolling um, the the funds to go through it and go through karting with the best equipment get into a seat or into a car and in some cases really extreme cases just buying the team and buying the car and putting their son in the in the seat to race forward you uh, i wouldn't say you, you had that same sort of um that same sort of start did you perry you know the, the boys whose dads have bought a team i would go with that any day of the week you know <laughs> oh, yeah. and it's like I mean, years ago, I put an ad in the paper, Richard Parents needed, please apply to a lot of son. You know, it's, I would have gone whichever way you want to do it. It, it, was, um, it was certainly more of a fraught uh, career, uh, to be quite frank. And I think other drivers have experienced similar things, maybe not getting to F1, but one of the big limitations of motor racing is, is budget. You know, you, you find out very soon that fin- motor racing is a financially dependent sport. So to even get in, to even start, and you're quite right, by the time I started, I was, um, what was I, 20, 21, mm. um, which is insanely late. Yeah. Um, even by even back then, it was really way, way too late. Had you done karting we, before then or anything like that? No, that's the thing, Rachel, because the people I was coming in against had been karting yeah. for years. They'd won championships, won races, everything else. So... When I decided to come into motor racing, it was a decision after being to Brands Hatch, their chief instructor, and he dragged me out the car and just said, you've got to be a racing driver. And I said, I've just made the decision I'm going to be. (laughs) So I went to work on North Sea Oil Rigs for two years to get the money together because it paid very well out there. Mm. Um, But, you know, you've got to want something quite a lot being out there because it's it's not particularly pleasant. But it earned a good few bob. And it managed to allow me to come back and kick off at 21. But the thing is, it does make me laugh a bit now when you hear a driver saying, oh, I'll be in this formula and this will be my learning year and then I'll do that year and then maybe I'll progress and we'll go through. And then <laughs> you're joking. There was no plan with me. Mm. It was like, I've got this amount of money. You start winning fast, otherwise you're finished. That's all there was to it. So that was really what I had to do. And when I came in, it was straight into a national championship, into what we call Formula Ford, which was like the kind of proving ground for all future Grand Prix drivers. Out and came through it, Damon, me, everybody else, you know. So, uh, sorry, I didn't mention, mean to mention my name in the same sentence as Out and Sally, you know. But, um, but I'm just saying that all these guys came through Formula Ford pretty much. So it's it was fast, close contact racing, and I was very, very fast immediately. But I didn't know what I was doing. So there were quite a few crashes. And every time I crashed, it meant I had to go back on the oil rigs to earn more money to come back and pay for the crash damage to do another race. But 
that six races in 82, I got my act together the following year and won 10 out of 20 races, or was it 12 out of 20 races, and won the British Championship. So that, that was the thing. It, it had to be, I had to sparkle, yeah. uh, to be quite honest, immediately to get some attention because this game, you know, you 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 want to, out of pure personal pride, you're a competitive person, you're a sportsman, you want to win, but you've got to get attention because, you know, going from Formula Ford champion, you don't go straight to F1. Mm. You've got to get more money together. So it was about walking around industry estates, knocking on doors, chatting up anybody I could meet to say name on the car, come to the track, get in the newspapers. So, so much of my time was actually spent maneuvering and trying to find an industrious way to create the sponsorship or backing to keep helping me come up through the international ladder. That's crazy. Can I just, so before you were 18, how much racing did you do then? Because this None. is really, and Zero. what was it about racing that you loved that you were so determined you wanted to be a driver? Well, I didn't even race at 18, Reg, because, I, you know, after coming out of the Browns Hatch School, mm. I then went on to the Oryx, you know. So my, my first races wasn't through until I was pretty much 21. So that, that you know, it was, a, it was a big time lapse. But I, do, I can't completely put my finger on it. As a kid, I always loved cars. Mm. And I was at college and I was studying law, economics uh, and um, uh, sociology and also art. And I used to draw a lot of portraits. No, no real talent, honestly, uh, but I'm a pretty good copier. But I used to keep drawing Formula One cars and then reading about these guys. And it kind of matched in well with my hobby, which was terrorising the nation on the road in my 1.1 Ford Escort. <laughs> and um, that went well. Um, I met a lot of the Essex police like that. Yeah. Um, we used to have cosy uh, roadside chats about the misgivings of my ways, but um, but it was that it was that kind of I found something that I could do because I was really no good at football or cricket or rugby. I was quite good at gymnastics, but but all the normal team sports I was rubbish. But I was competitive, you know. Yeah. And suddenly I found this, and it kind of suited my personality. And then I've always known. Um, as a child and as a teenager, I always, always felt that as soon as I found something, it would be obsessive. Mm. It would be, that is what I'm going to do. And it just fit all the parameters. And thank goodness for me, it kind of went well enough, quick enough to say, hey, you might stand a chance here, sunshine, you know? Mm. And that, that, was, that was it. So my life was then dedicated to as I say, knocking on doors, making phone calls, sending out proposals, getting some money together, going on track, going as fast as I blooming well could, yeah. and then doing all that, and then repeating the whole thing next week. And was that as rare then as it is now to hear? I think that there are, I, I think the oil rig thing is very rare. I think that starting as late as I did to have a real interest and a real drive I also think that is very rare, but the financial struggle um, is well known to junior racing drivers, as it is to many other sports people that that need some cash to even travel and accommodation, training fees, mm. physiotherapy, whatever the score is. But there's a lot of people who decide at some point that it's not worth it, 
or maybe they're not worth it, or it's not going well enough, or they can't take the pressure anymore, or they can't stand the the periods of downtime when there is nothing going on and you're trying. So I think that for good or for bad, I might say here, that my level of determination um, is kind of right the way up there with that of uh, a maniac, really. Um, you know, that was, but I, but the thing is, I've made the decision. Um, and every time there were so many things that went wrong on the track as well. I made a bunch of mistakes at different points in time. But then if you were kind of getting down and trying to reevaluate to think, hey, listen, am I really good enough for this? You had to convince yourself and say, hey, hang on a second, Perry, you've beaten him, you've beaten him, you've beaten him, you've done, you've done it all. Just get your mind hard and sharp and you can do this. And that's uh, and then gradually, then you start developing fans inside the sport. And, and that is, it's so needed, you know, an arm around the shoulder or, or pat on that. You know, I'm like a Labrador. I just love a pat on the back, you know. <laughs> um, but but you need it. So you, you're out there to convince people, as well as yourself, what you can do. And then bit by bit, you have people saying, actually, you know something? You've got something. And that justifies, well, <laughs> attempts to justify the really horrible times that there were so many of. Yeah. So one of the questions I always love asking professional drivers is, what was the moment that you realised you were quite good? What was the re- the moment you realised you were in the seat and actually you were one of the quick guys or you you even deserved to be there? Did that happen whilst you were in F1 or was that before then? It, it happened immediately that I went on track. Wow. Yeah. Um, but you see, that was just, but without sounding big-headed, that was just my opinion. And if I didn't think that, then I would have been wasting my time trying to come through. Mm. But mm. I went out and was you know, pretty much fastest straight away. Okay, I wasn't against Ayrton or Nigel or Nelson Pico or whatever the score was, but I was against some very, very good people. So so there was something there, but it's never it's never enough. You have to develop. Mm. So what I convinced myself of was that there was, there were, you know, I thought I was Jack the Lad. I really did. But the further you go on, the more you realise how flawed you are and how much you've got to concentrate and how much there is to, to, to focus on and try to get better to achieve more. But, but you, you st- unless you've got managers and advisors, which, of course, I didn't have, you know, it maybe took me a little bit more time to start understanding, hey, Perry, you've got to be even fitter or you've got to be a little bit more technically savvy or you've got to work with the team a bit better, or you've got to think about, you know, so there was there was always gaps in me all the way through. Um, because if I'd been the absolute finished product, I would have been world champion at 22, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but it's a it's a growth, it's a growth path. And if you're serious, then you know, occasionally I'd pat myself on the back and have a big smile about a win or being fastest or whatever. But I absolutely swear to you, I never got carried away about that. The confidence was growing. Mm. There's no question about it. But I just always knew there was more work to do. And as soon as you become too self-satisfied, you stop. You, you start thinking you've got it all covered. I guarantee you in this game, you've never got it all covered. 
even Grand Prix drivers of today, you know, some of the top boys. You see, you know, young Lando Norris, who's an absolute superstar. How many times do you see him challenging himself, thinking, oh, I made a mistake? I could, you know, some of these guys are really hard on themselves. And to a degree, you have to be because you're trying to get more and more. You're always, you're always looking over your shoulder in this game. What can I do better? How can I do it? Yeah. And it's that, it's that determination. This is why racing drivers are, in my opinion, they're often quite haunted because, you know, if you might be doing terribly well, and if you are, the guys who are behind you, they're coming after you. So you've got to do even better to stay in front of them. If they're doing better than you, they're your target. What can I do to be better than them? So that that's how your life is spent. It's not just about yee-haw, bit of understeer, bit of oversteer, look at me, and I'm quick. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of work, but I loved that challenge. Mm. And this is what I find so intriguing about Formula One, this constant state of competitiveness. Apart from the drivers, the mechanics, the engineers, the designers, the fabricators, the welders, the assemblers, the test team, all of these people have had a career and had to come through to keep being better. And it's that challenging environment where everybody is striving all the time to steal another hundredth of a second or a tenth of a second over a four-mile lap, you know? It's that desire. I was going to say, do you think nowadays a 20-year-old who has never raced before could one day wake up and think, I want to be an F1 driver and do what you did. Go, can can someone at that age today do what you did? Never say never. Yeah. But, you know, absolutely. I think it'd be more unlikely now because um, motor racing has always, always been horribly expensive. But with the money that I was earning on the rigs, I was just about able to begin my career and pay for several races. A Formula Ford budget now, and I may be out of touch, but I think a Formula Ford budget now is 150, 160, 170,000 pounds. Do you know what? I may be out of touch. It may be 200,000 pounds. Now, working on the rigs, you're not going to earn that kind of money to even start doing one, two, three races, you know? So unless somebody's got immediate access to sponsorship, investment, funding, from friends of the family or the family itself, I think is I think it's even more difficult now for somebody to come through. Do you still get involved in modern day F one? Do you still follow it and enjoy the sport, or do you feel it's now evolved in such a dramatic way from your time in it? Because we're talking early nineteen nineties, wasn't it? Nineteen ninety two was your your debut into the sport. Yeah, how relatable is it in comparison to from nineteen ninety two to? to now 30 years later there, there's certainly a lot of differences but it's still f1 it's still the pinnacle of world motorsport um and again i love that kind of um striving for excellence you know uh, the way everybody goes about it there are certain things inside the sport which i don't find quite as much fun anymore mm. um there are a whole bunch of things that make me sound like a dinosaur that i i don't like the the way data is driving the sport, the the levels of sophistication. For me personally, they're unnecessary because I'm looking at this now as somebody loves Formula One and 
having had a background in motor racing, but I'm now also a fan and a spectator. Mm. And I sometimes think, you know, do we need all that? Do we need all that? Because I'm not clear, the, the old adage, racing improves the breed, I'm not clear that some of this stuff is always feeding back down. Yeah, I'm kind of slight bit of a dinosaur going on here. I'm, I'm more kind of gladiatorial. I love to see a punch up out there, you know, <laughs> driver against driver, you know, let's just, just get on with it and, you know, rub wheels and see who's going to come through. But, but it's brilliant to see talent, you know, absolute standout talent shining and coming through and even being up there. I mean, you know, Lewis is still there. It's just, just, I mean, very, you know, seriously, I'm very proud of the fact that between me and Lewis, we've currently won seven world championships. Um, You'll have to think about that one. (laughs) But I must admit that when, you know, when they're forming up on the grid, I actually am on the edge of my seat. I'm I'm watching everybody to see who's got the style, who's got the traction in first, who's got the traction in Portman in second gear as well, coming funneling through into the first corner because I've had that so many times where you're thinking, well, this is where it all gets action-packed. But the drivers nowadays, you know, they are – what they have to contend with, their their mental capacity is incredible. Um, you know, back when I was out there, I used to have a drinks bottle and a radio button. And, and I tell you what, the drinks bottle was normally empty and the radio didn't work. So I was kind of covered. <laughs> Nowadays, they've got steering wheels where you've got to be a rocket scientist. You know, it's like they, they, the team were calling out, go to H2, J3, X7. You know, one of them's going to say, you've just sucked my battleship soon. You know, it's like, and then they're doing that all on the steering wheel. And all these kind of computations are 200 miles an hour. So I kind of think that many of us coming through, you you had to have um, a sensitive backside to be able to feed back to the team what's happening with the car uh, so that you can make the right adjustments to hopefully go faster. But nowadays, the engineering expertise and the capacity that these drivers have got, I personally reckon, is you know a, a different level now. This is the way these guys have come through. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the analytics side of F1 now, and yeah, we've we've seen it. I think firsthand, a lot of people that perhaps weren't F1 fans, diehard F1 fans, have suddenly been exposed to the sport through things like Drive to Survive on Netflix, which has brought a whole new world of controversy to the sports. There. Are, critics that sit there thinking are they making weird strategic decisions here to make for good telly rather than make for good motorsport it's always really hard to kind of make that judgment and some would say they are some would say they aren't Um, but I think you're right I think there's a lot of people that spectate and watch the sport and think it is a bit too technical you know you've got engineers now radioing through to drivers telling them there's a problem before the driver even knows about it oh we've detected a misfire on one of the cylinders so therefore can you rein it in a bit whereas in the good old-fashioned days you know you might have been two or three laps later you would have detected that there's something not quite right with the car and then fed it back in afterwards to the pit lane and that to me seems more exciting than this whole oh lights come on the laptop there's a problem we'll let you know pull it in it's just the, the drama is diluted in that sense i feel Actually, John, I'll, I'll pull you up on saying not just on my behalf, but on everybody else's behalf, is that um, any driver worth their salt would probably feel yeah. something different with an engine, yeah. let alone a misfire where yeah, you're yeah. in real trouble. You, you, you kind of, because one of the things with our cars is that as opposed to a family road car, 
is that the seats are made for us. So mm-hmm. every part of your body is fits into the seat. That seat itself is jammed into the car. So the upshot of that is that, again, experience and sensitivity, you feel everything that's happening coming through the car. All you've got to do is identify that and act on it. But if you're good enough, you do feel everything. Mm-hmm. And certainly some people that are better than me that doing that, and I'm hopefully better than a lot of other people doing that. So it's you're there. But that is the thing. You're strapped in so tight with the shoulder, shoulder belts, the lap belts, the crutch belts, that you really should be almost a kind of solid component of the car mm-hmm. where shock waves and movements coming through you. So I beg your pardon, that's the long way around saying <laughs> something like that, a driver from, let's say, my era would still feel it, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, but he would be the one to probably bring it back to the team until then. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Um, I had a look at your Facebook um, before I got here today. had a little look at, you know, the, yeah, past photos. And there's a brilliant photo of you um, when it was the Brazilian Grand Prix. And basically you were showing the fact that um, the photo taken in Lagos was it's just reflecting after all, all the years of working on oil rigs to fund your career and to fill your dream of working in F1, you finally achieved it. And it literally is a picture of you, uh, your first race in Formula One in Lagos, um, and you on an oil rig. And it's madness to see it's such a juxtaposition. So how did you end up in an F1 paddock? I think it was some reputation, Rich, because, you know, struggling for budget nearly all the way through. I had a fairly good budget in Formula 3, but then sadly got quite badly injured. So that that went to the wayside. So the rest of the time was struggling for budget um, in Formula 3000 when I was in America. But the the thing I would often do is that, you know, certainly in 3000, I joined a team where that particular manufacturer wasn't even qualifying for races. So I was putting it kind of 15th on the grid or 12th on the grid. So it's kind of like having your own little win. You know, if you if you haven't got the team and the car and the budget to stand on the podium, in life, I think this applies without getting too profound. But I do believe that you can have wins. You can show the world that, you know, in adverse situation, this is what I'm willing to try to do. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, I actually do something that's hopefully considered standout. So it was that reputation of he won't quit. You know, um, you know, so there was this tiny little team in Formula One and many of the people that were uh, involved in that felt that they were going to need somebody with that attitude to turn around and say, look, don't expect too much. (laughs) This is going to be this isn't going to be a a bed of roses. Mm. You know, now I might say I went into that team not expecting too much. And that was an overestimate because we were really bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were we were not just slow. We were dangerous. Right. You know? In fact, my car was really slim, tight fit, and it was all in black. We were going to put four brass handles on the side to just save time and bury. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Oh, wow. But that was the, the, the thing that I had managed to, how I was seen, was that was the reputation that people felt I was very, very fast and was hopefully somebody could win just waiting to happen when plugged into the right car and team. So, but it's a question of, yeah, I'm finding myself getting very profound in this conversation, actually. Yeah, you know me, 
you know me, Rachel, normally it's a, you know, a, a <laughs> gag and everything else, but everything, everything had been about, you know, because before I even, just as I got into Formula One, I was losing the house as well because racing in America for two years with no money, paying for your own transport and everything else. It was, everything was just against the odds. So they were the pressures in the background as well. So people knew that no matter what the circumstances were, uh, I mean, in America, I was setting pole positions, leading the races against the massive works teams. Mm. But our, our engine would go or the gearbox would go, but my job was to put it on the pole or to lead the race reputational stuff and it's it's about identifying okay maybe this isn't the best opportunity in the world but it's an opportunity mm -hmm. so get inside prize it open and try and make something from it and i guess that that is going back to what we were talking about earlier john that's why i stayed in mm -hmm. because i could always see opportunity i'm a bit of an idiot i'm an optimist i see the light at the end of the tunnel and i think i can somehow get there yeah. Just more effort, stay around, do this, do that. Whereas maybe some people are a little more realistic than me or not as dreamlike and they just say, ah, enough's enough. But that that's certainly the difference between me and some other people. Mm. It's certainly paid dividends, but it has but it's come at a cost. Yeah. Mm. That that's all I can say. So sorry, Rach, it was about opportunity. And that was just sniffing out opportunity. And the way I got into the F1 car, yeah, there were people that said, we've got to have Perry in this. Yeah. That was it. Did people around you, your loved ones, kind of think you're, you're crazy? You've, you know, or if you had a partner at that time? Because it's not, a, it's not a selfish attitude at all to put your passion and your career first. But were your loved ones at any point thinking, you're losing, like, this isn't working like how because that's tough not to listen to other people sure um i mean the children were just really too young to have an opinion they thought it was exciting to have a racing driver as their dad karen uh my wife um i mean we've been to go close to 40 years now she she just believed i could do it you know so that was it so when it was a question of saying goodbye to the house or being in massive debt or whatever she was just the same as me you know, just saying, well, we can make this. You know, that that was it. So, you know, there's a there's a, a huge amount of respect to be given to her. Not too much, because I'd prefer to talk about me. But, uh, <laughs> no, but um, but Karen was she was really on side. And you can imagine the, you know, without getting the violin out here, but when I'm talking about there is a cost to having this attitude and this mm. relentless yeah. uh, approach, is that there was a lot of times when we couldn't afford this, we couldn't afford that. We certainly weren't going on holidays. It would always be a, a kind of car that somebody has lent to us. It doesn't matter. Mm. Whatever it took, whatever it takes. And and that was, that was you know, because if it wasn't that, then you go you walk off in a huff and saying, I'm too good for this. No, you put your head down and you sleep in the back of a race transporter if necessary, if you can't afford the hotel bills, yeah. whatever it takes. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I think it's quite a rare outlook now. I'd say probably rarer now than it was maybe back then. Um with regards to you know having that amount of ambition mm. and seeing that light at the end of the tunnel and and deciding to pursue it rather than what I think a lot of people do in a such a you know vastly competitive world and of course things like social media have made life so much more difficult now because of course it seems you know, we all show the best version of ourselves on social media we all sh- this is the highlight reel Instagram is the highlight reel of what's happening and it can be very easy to fall into the trap of going oh no well everyone else is everyone else is kind of smashing it and everyone else is kind of winning at life and maybe I feel like I'm I'm yeah. not as as good but I wanted I want to explore that even back then. There must have been times, even with that positive outset and a really admirable outset, there must have been times where it didn't work out. And I'd like to know at the times when perhaps you did go in pursuit of something and it didn't pay off, how did you react to that? And what was, you know, did you find it easy to bounce back and just get straight back into it? Or were there times where you did start to doubt yourself? There's always been self-doubt. Um and that's what, you know, I know we were touching on this earlier. That, that's what made me faster and faster. Mm. Um, because to just say, you, you, you need, I tell you, you need that stopwatch. And you need that stopwatch to, start, to, to stop in the right position. Because that is evidence that you're fast. Mm. If that stopwatch, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter about the team or it doesn't matter about the car. If you're slow, you're slow. Yeah. And that's what you're projecting, you know. So that is the the battle to turn around and say, I've got to go faster. Um, one of the things you're doing is that you're looking at yourself clearly and you're thinking, what this thing, you know, without going around it again, what can I do and what can I be better? But one of the things that you really need to do, probably in business as well and in life, is, is to actually create the environment around you as well, so much as you can, so that you can actually perform. Because it's all very well being brave, last man standing, let's go, I'm nothing stopping me. But if you've got no team around you, that's going to be even more difficult. So it's it's well to identify clever people, bright people, trying to be attached to them, that their expertise, their intelligence, because it's only gonna it's only gonna be better for you at the end of the day. But clearly, as as you said, there were so many times which, you know, there was some absolute bad luck, you know. Now, I'm going to hold my hand up immediately and say I was far from perfect. There were some times which was critical when I made a, you know, was two Bertie Big Bananas and went around the outside and crashed. You know, that was that's confidence, but it had gone wrong. So I made some critical errors. But there were some times when I was leading major, major races where the engine went or the gearbox went. And this is without me going, yeah. you know, it's I wasn't driving like that. And sometimes you can look up and just go, oh, goodness. There was one point that was really 
it was challenging, but nothing out of the ordinary. Is that myself, Damon, um, Gary Brabham, Ukio Katsuyama, uh, we were invited to test for footwork. Um, and so it was a runoff between all of us. Now, I'd gone very fast indeed. I won't tell you how much by, but I was clearly quicker than anybody else. But Damon was given the drive um, because the Japanese like the heritage that Damon had come from. But here's the friendship side of stuff. Damon knew what I'd been through and I knew what he was going through and everything else to try to get to the top. And the, the, the day that we found out, Damon phoned up and just said, Pell, you know, I've got it, but I'm so sorry. Mm. Now, you know, I tell you, that actually still brings a lump to my throat, you know, telling that story now. Because that's friendship survives stuff, you know? And it, he knew what I'd been through and Karen and the family, etc. So he knew, he knew he had to get the drive. There's no question about that. I knew he had to get the drive, but so did I. But one of us has got to fall over. So, but we would have both done, so I would have called him, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was really nice. And I've had that quite a lot with other race drivers, that there's that respect there yeah. where they, you know, race drivers are quite good together a lot of the time because one can talk to other people about trying to explain or describe an experience, an emotional experience or an on-track experience or whatever. But unless you've actually been in the car at those levels, that near miss, that close one, that success, that failure, etc. I think racing drivers find a shorthand way to talk to each other where you know what you're thinking. You know, a classic one used to be coming in, did you take that flat? Yeah, I took that. <laughs> yeah, I tried. And you see the eyes bulging, and you know if their eyes are bulging, they've tried to take it flat as well. Yeah. And that, that's something that's very difficult to explain to anybody else. But again, you. but I'm sorry, I'm... I'm probably going around the houses here, but I'm just trying to describe to you guys and your listeners that there is an affinity sometimes between certain racing drivers. And even though they can be your fiercest competitors, sometimes for me personally, I've drawn a lot of solace from that friendship, you know, and that understanding. And that's been, that's certainly been something that I've massively enjoyed in my career, having met super people and developed such brilliant friends. Mm. So from that first moment in Formula One, when did your love, I mean, you uh, raced in Le Mans five times, when did that appear? Because if your dream was to race in Formula One, where, where, where was Le Mans? Because that is my favourite race ever. Well, I couldn't get any other drive. <laughs> <laughs> is that true, though? Yeah. Well, I, when I came out of Formula One, um, it was... I had a shot at joining the Benetton team because I'd, I'd worked with Benetton as their third driver for a little while. And, and I had a couple of shots with Williams as well. Um, but it was wrong timing, wrong place. There you go, whatever. So, but at least I've been in one. But now we were in such a state at home financially is that I had to stop motor racing for a little while, literally go get a job to start repaying huge debts, etc. And then I came back with a um, an offer from the Lotus Works team to come into the World Championship. So I joined them to come back, and then the Chrysler Works team saw I was back. So they said, Perry, would you join us for Le Mans? 
So that was their first outing. So I did that. And then from there, the panels team said, oh, you're back. So we're signing you up for a drive for the full world championship oh, the following wow. year. So these were, you know, again, opportunities, yeah. being out there, trying to make the most of it. And that's how we then paid off all the debts and 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 came back up for air and uh, <laughs> and, and started enjoying motor racing again, you know. But the Le Mans race is sensational, isn't it? You know, I so mean, addictive. yeah, but it's like an absolute endurance test. Mm. I mean, you're talking about endurance tests for the drivers, but obviously for the teams. And I mean, God, if you look at the British spectators as well, it's an endurance test for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they they get out on Wednesday and start drinking heavily. I mean, yes, have, you seen, <laughs> yeah. uh, have you seen Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, where it starts off as the chimp and goes up through to man? <laughs> Yeah, well, with the Brits drinking at Le Mans, it's the other way around. They start off as men, start drinking by Sunday. They're... That's so true, though. It's so true. But Le Mans is amazing. What was that like? Did you love it? Did, again, did you fall in love with endurance racing the same as Formula One? Um, no, not to the same level. Um, but every lap was, you know, gone even by the time I came in. Gone were the days where you're lifting off the throttle down the straight to protect the car. The, the technology was good enough to you know pretty much stay flat out as fast as you could nearly every lap so there was a sprint element to that so you'd go out there and you you're on for you know two hours giving everything you can um so that was good but um but there there often wasn't the lap after lap close racing that i kind of enjoyed Mm. those kind of battles yeah but it's being part of a team and you're sharing a car so unlike being a classic single-seater driver, this is your car, you're the only one, that's it. You, there is a bit of push, give and take, pardon me, between you and your teammates on, on working together and stuff. So there were, there were different attributes that are required for Le Mans, and you learn different things. And, you know, but I was very fortunate to then be taken from Panos. I was getting close to joining Mercedes then, but then Audi came in mm-hmm. and signed me up as one of their first works drivers with you know, some real stars, you know, it's, uh, it's, it was brilliant to be working with Michele Albretto. Michele Albretto was the first person who came up to me in Formula One and just said, welcome to Formula One, Barry, you know? Wow. And, you know, as a as a guy just coming into Grand Prix, you got Albretto coming up and you just going, yeah, that's what I mean about Easy. some of the lovely things about this game. But it's not always dog-eat-dog. You know, there's an appreciation between drivers sometimes. There's there are very few drivers that I've kind of not kind of liked or or got on with, but you separate that, of course, when you're out on track. Mm. You know, um, you just try and you're out to do the best you can to beat to beat everybody. Obviously, yeah, I can imagine. It's interesting, isn't it, the dynamic of drivers and the the politics between them. And again, I think this is a a big talking point given the publicity of modern day F1 and not even just F1, but even things like touring car. And, you know, everyone loves a rivalry. Everyone as a spectator, as a fan, they love to see a bit of drama between drivers, but I'm always fascinated. I always like to think, you know, I wonder how much of it is true. How much of it is genuine drama? We saw that brilliant. I don't know if you've seen it, but a brilliant post uh, Lewis Hamilton recently put up on Instagram where he eventually went out, essentially went out for dinner with the entire F1 grid. All the drivers went out for dinner together and you see moments like that and you think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite nice you know, to think that it is this hyper-exclusive club of both ability and, as you say, 
you know it's 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 comparable almost to going to battle you know you can talk you can you can share war stories and you can give opinions of what you think it's like but if you weren't there it's very hard to mm. truly relate into into what it's like so suddenly putting all those drivers together who have been through those emo- emotions of both success and loss and risk and just general excitement would you say do you think as an observer now modern day f1 is is friendlier or less friendly than it was in your era and are there any friendships that have really kind of rung true and people that you're still able to pick up the phone to once a week or so and have a chat with yeah sure i mean that thing the other night with lewis was lovely um getting everybody together but of course that was in honor of seb sebastian better yeah and that that was not just about sebastian's achievements of being four-time world champion but that's also about sebastian as a fellow you know, um, because he has generated such huge respect with his attention to quite a few different issues and the way he goes about it. And we'll be seeing, of course, Sebastian with different things going forward. But there's a real respect and affection for Sebastian. And I think that was reflected with Lewis putting that together and everybody attending. Mm. So it is really nice to see. Um, I kind of felt F1 went through quite a period of time when we certainly weren't privy to great friendships or banter or or everything else, even though they may have existed. But what we're certainly seeing recently, and something that really makes me smile, is when you're seeing Lando, George Russell, Alex Albon, all needling each other, having a laugh, and then going out and doing the job. And I really like that. You know, I I just love the relationship those guys have got. They're, they're, They're having fun. They've all got a sense of humor, but they're absolutely all focused. My little lot, Yeah, we had a very unusual situation, probably a little bit like Lando, George, and and, uh, Alex, actually. Is that me, Damon Hill, Johnny Herbert, Mark Blundell, Julian Bailey, and Martin Donnelly, we actually came all the way through from Formula Ford, Formula 3, sorry, Formula Ford, Formula 3, Formula 3000, and then Formula 1. And so we knew each other as mates very well indeed. Mm. And, you know, there was... A lot of affection between all of us there on that and an awful lot of support as well as an awful lot of competition, you know. And it was a real long time ago that we started what we call the Rat Pack, of which I'm going to be big-headed and tell you I'm in <laughs> jail, okay? Well done. Um, yeah, but uh, but it started off as us six and we would meet up. Well, I mean, we used to see each other for drinks and stuff every all the time anyway. And, the, you know, the families know each other because that's how long we were all coming coming through together. So that's, you know, really nice people spending time at each other's houses. You you wouldn't believe it. And then you go racing. So that's great. But clearly, of course, there is the competition side of it as well. But with the Rat Pack, yeah, we've continued. And since then, immediately afterward, we added uh, Martin Brundle to it. And it's grown a little bit. We've got you know, Jason Plato from Touring Cars, uh, Derek Warwick, of course, you know, and... Um, uh, more recently, Jonathan Palms joined us. My dear, dear friend, Johnny Butte, who was uh, Johnny Dumfries, um, he was part of it. But Johnny, of course, passed away last year and missing desperately. Um, so that was it. So we're all still seeing each other. And I can't tell you where, but uh, <laughs> in the middle of December, we have our 2022 Rat Pack. Really? So, How yeah. often so do you like guys a- meet up? Well, for the Rat Pack thing, certainly once a year. Um, And sometimes we all kind of semi-get together at a different point. But Mm -hmm. absolutely, it's our Christmas Rat Pack thing. And I've been putting that together for 
God, what is it? Over thirty years now. That's you know? amazing. You all turn up and you're all there. Please tell me there's yeah, yeah, an yeah. element of go karting involved in this. There has to be, surely. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're joking. No, no. There, there, there is a there is an element of drinking. Yeah, involved. I was going to say there must be a lot of drinking. There, Quite John. a significant one, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but come on. I mean, surely there's got to be somebody listening that wants to sponsor a a Rat Pack go karting tournament end of year. All of you guys together racing around. Who gets the fastest? Like that'd be amazing. No. It'd be carnage, and anyway, I can t- and I can I can probably tell you immediately it'd be fastest anyway, Johnny. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't tell him I said that. No. But he's. Uh, I don't know what it is with him. He's got just something extra in a car, and uh, yeah, I really hope he doesn't watch this because I can't stand paying him too many compliments. Yeah. No. No. Um, I still want to come now, don't you? In the middle of December, we need Definitely. to stalk Perry yeah, and find yeah. out where this Rat Pack Christmas dinner is. Um, so, Perry, how did you go from this amazing self-made racing career to being the Stig? Like, what happened from that maybe final race? Did you think, this is it, I can't do it anymore? If that was the case, why couldn't you? What, what was that? What happened? I was actually still racing when Stiggy stuff came about. And it literally was, you know, everybody said to me, you know, because, you know, Rachel, I, I love a story and I ha- love having a laugh and a joke. Mm. Um, so they said, you know, you've got to write a book about your career and the ups and downs and how you come for it and the laughs and the stunts and everything else. And I said, yeah, I'm going to. So, you know, in all seriousness, that's I, I did write a book. I wasn't commissioned for it. I thought I'm just going to write this book because I really do enjoy writing. So I was satisfied with it at the end. And Haynes Publishing found out about it. They wanted to publish it. And Audi, who I was closely associated with, they put on this brilliant party for me in the West End. Wow. Uh, we were we were right opposite the Ritz. You know, in the there used to be a great big Audi dealership there. So we had a, a fantastic night with all sorts of people coming along, really, really well supported. So a lot of people backed me up so much, you know, and it was really lovely. All the Rat Pack was there, so that was great. Uh, Yeah, and loads of other people from, you know, you'll know quite a few of them, I reckon, Race, you probably will do as well, John, you know. So they were there, and it literally was there. This isn't just a story. It was literally there that Jeremy said, hey, listen, we're going to need to chat, you know, and we've got this idea for you, um, this secret racing driver. So then I started thinking about it and thought, one of the things in motor racing is that, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay having a chat with people. I quite enjoy it. But when I'm walking toward a car for qualifying or something like that, I'm actually in Perry world, mm-hmm. you know? I really don't want to be speaking to anybody, mm-hmm. possibly even the team as well, to be quite frank, you know? So you've got that side to you where you're going, I don't want to talk to anybody. And that is the absolute pure racing driver. Yeah. That's yeah. that that job, the light bulb, screw the light bulb in, light bulb does the job and goes. Mm. Well, I thought, well, do you know something? That's what the stick could be. Mm. You know, he doesn't have to interact with anybody. He doesn't have to understand anybody. He can get bored as soon as somebody says hello and just walk <laughs> away. He doesn't have to have any manners. So I just thought, you know, because so much had gone wrong in my career, I was pretty used to standing like that anyway, <laughs> you know. It's like the and I thought, job. <laughs> and I thought, well, this can be the fun, is to just make Stiggy completely immune and just doesn't understand or doesn't need to understand anything 
except getting behind a wheel. Yeah. And everybody seemed to really like that approach. And I think that kind of made people smile and, and just kind of added to the mystery and the awe of the character, mm. not of me, but of the character, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I think that kind of works. See, I'm, I've got, you know, Hollywood is waiting. My interpretation of this is, you know, this is what that. I'm This reading. is a film in the, yeah. in the making. It is. I, I was using a backstory there to reach people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could do this. You know, Jackie Stewart's done a film. You could do a film. Done. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jackie Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> would you say would you describe yourself as a lucky person perry because i think a lot of people listening might think mm. you know whilst there's undoubtedly been graft absolute pure graft and i am you know i kind of i often try to skirt around terms like lucky and fortuitous the only reason i ask is i, I think i'm thinking back to a podcast that we recorded with clarkson funnily enough and uh, in fact we've done a couple of recordings with with jeremy uh, jeremy hosted by one of our other presenters and um, in that, Jeremy describes himself as the world's luckiest man. He says, you know, things just happen. I was, you know, I, I lost my job there and then something else came along and then that went wrong, but something else came along. And I guess you could argue there might be a few people listening going, okay, so your competitive F1 and then Le Mans career was looking like it might have been coming to an end, although albeit you were still racing in Le Mans. And suddenly here's this new opportunity that comes along. Would you say you're lucky or fortuitous or, or do you put that down to the, the graft in the early years? I think if I was going to give you, give you a quick answer, uh, I would turn around and say lucky uh, on several different levels mm-hmm. is that, you know, I'm not unique. Um, me and many of my mates have had fairly bad accidents. Mm. Um, I've had several which were pretty bad. Um, so, A, lucky, um, because I've got old friends who are no longer with us who weren't lucky, mm. you know. Um, so, lucky there. Um Lucky with the family, uh, lucky that there have been opportunities that I have been able to open up and get into and we do aware. Uh absolutely in certain races have been unlucky. Mm. Uh I've also made my own bad luck uh in a few of those things. But overall, overall, I'd say I'd say lucky. Um, but it does that thing I, I'll, I'll mention it again. It comes at a cost mm. because Jeremy was being self-effacing and, and quite humble. Which is you sure it was Jeremy you're speaking to? <laughs> um, because his luck came around because he was so different. He's a brilliant TV presenter. Whether you like the bloke or not, he's a great TV presenter. He's an incredible writer. He's, he's very, he's highly intelligent. Yeah, he knows exactly what he's doing. And these are all exceptional qualities that are in one package so is he lucky or you know because he's because he refined his art in a few of these things did he become an obvious choice so this is what you're always trying to do isn't it all of us have got careers and we're all kind of relished point yeah i kind of the the things that i understand is that i can i've tapped on this before touched on this before pardon me I've completely, unfortunately, I completely understand failure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely understand failure. Fortunately, I also understand success. Okay, so that's great. Mm. The one thing that I do not understand, I mean don't understand, is mediocrity. Mm-hmm. That, forget it. I would, honest to God, rather try my 
guts out on on trying to reach something that I believe could be fun, could be interesting, could be an adventure, could be important even, you know, and fail mm. than not trying. Yeah. But we're all made of different things. But that's, I would, even at my uh, advancing years, I'm still out for adventure. I'm still out for what is the next thing? What can I achieve? What would be fun to be involved in? How can I make a difference to it? Yeah. And that keeps me, oh, here's the plug, that keeps me driven <laughs> but you've got um, a real fearlessness and i think that's it as well like a lot of us would be like you know i want to achieve this i want to do that but oh you know i can't because oh because of this because of that you 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 come across like you've got this fearlessness and i think that's key as well you just go for it well this, this, <laughs> that's really sweet of you. but there's there's probably an element of being stupid as well um but, <laughs> well. but, but i kind of i do think that sometimes if you sit down and evaluate the the potential of success as being your only defining factor, then then you probably won't end up doing anything because you know on the track and in business and in life you you kind of try to squeeze you know if you're looking at stuff analytically you try to squeeze risk down from those that you're working with to your ambitions to an opportunity that you've seen to a dream you've got a passion that you possess. You try to squeeze the risk down on that. But anything worth going after, you might be able to squeeze the risk down, but you'll never eliminate it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you'll never eliminate risk. So it's a question of throwing your hat in the ring. And the best way to try and overcome uh, risk is, is to give everything you've got. Yeah. And it still may not be good enough, as my Formula One career certainly showed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a great example of you still having that mentality is um again when I was having my Facebook stalk is you are a co-owner and commercial director of women's national league club Crawley Wasps. How oh come on wasps how how did this come 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 along? Is this something that you wanted to get into women's women's sport, women's football? Like how? Why? Tell us. So the, again, worlds collide on this kind of stuff. I really had started taking an interest last year in women's football. I really liked the story. I was, you know, the the, the talent inside women's football at top end is, is spectacular. That was fantastic. And the, just several months ago, an old friend of mine contacted me whose son is the chairman of Crawley Wasps women's football team in the... Um, Funnily enough, Crawley. Um, <laughs> the, the clue was in the name, huh? Yeah. And he said, look, you know, I think Jack's maybe going to need a hand because Crawley was in tier three. So in women's football, you've got the Women's Super League, then straight below that, there's the FA Championship, and then straight below that, tier three. Well, these girls are in tier three, these women are in tier three. And wouldn't it be fantastic to be able to get them into the FA Championship? So I invited Jack to come over here. So we sat down one afternoon. He took me through it. And I said, do you know what? Count me in. I'm on side. So I came in and we're partners in the ownership. And my job has been to try and create some attention and to try and produce extra funding into the team because we mentioned off air just before we started that the there's, an, there's a, a saying in motorists is that you go as fast as your checkbook. So that clearly means you can have more engines, you can have more tires, you can have more testing, you can have more personnel, you can have more aero time, all these kind of things. But it's quite true of pretty much any sport, and it's certainly true of football. And as I'm finding out 
within women's football because we would like more training, more physios, more indoor training, more nutritional bars that you've got to pay for the transportation for the away games, the accommodation, da, 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 da. you know, maybe you've got to start helping the girls a bit more with how much you can help them financially to stay at the club. Maybe with the turnaround of players, sometimes you might want to bring new players in. There's a rotation that you have to look at. So you need some money to bring those in. It's yeah. And it goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently on the search trying to put deals together so that the team have a better chance of coming through. Because what principally drew this to me was I thought it'd be fun to be involved in. But having my own experience of struggling and holding on for dear life as a sports person coming through, I was keen to come in to try to help make the difference for this squad to say, we can jointly make your life a little bit better mm. while you pursue the dream of becoming a professional footballer. So you put in the effort, I'll put in the effort. Mm. So that's, but it's, it's a slog. There's no question about it. You know, a lot of people, as ever with sponsorship, aren't desperately keen on parting with their money. Yeah. You've got to provide a compelling argument to bring them in. Are you still enjoying it? Is it still something you're lo loving that journey to get Crawley women's on the map? It's, I mean, I'm enjoying the involvement. I'm not enjoying every element of the journey mm. because there are frustrations, but that is something I came in with my eyes wide open. Yeah. And it's just a question of the same as ever. There's a barrier. So you go under it, round it, over it, or through it. But so it's still the same old fight, unfortunately, Rachel. It's a fight you're very good at, though. That's the thing. Um, also, something you're very good at. Uh, you are a keynote speaker and a motivational speaker. You do a lot of after dinner speaking as well. I can imagine, and especially at this time of the year, you are a man <laughs> in demand when it comes to this. Mm -mm. <laughs> hey! hey. <laughs> <laughs> little show pony here he is <laughs> it's behind you <laughs> but yeah how did that all come about and do you enjoy that yeah I do enjoy that and it all came about actually just from the comedy stuff to begin with because um when I got to Formula One it's so you know you you get to the pinnacle of world motorsport which is a pinnacle because if you look at premiership football I don't know was there four five thousand players worldwide you know, in Formula One, when I was out there, there was like 30 of us globally. <laughs> yeah. And and even having made it through to that level, I wasn't getting paid. Mm -hmm. So it was just to be able to get in. And on top of that, because we were such a small team, I had to find my expenses to travel to the circuits and also accommodation. Well, suddenly there were a lot of tour operators that were saying, you know, We've, we're going to take you to the Grand Prix and you're going to have grandstand seats and we've arranged travel, we've arranged hotels and everything else. And they were saying to me, Perry, would you come and speak to our guests and we'll pay for your flights and your hotel, you know? <laughs> so that's how it all kicked off. So I used to keep telling stories, what was happening, hopefully making everybody laugh. And um, so then suddenly the agencies in the UK got to hear about that. And then I started going out just on the after dinner stuff. But then after a period of time, maybe kind of like 10 years later, people started saying, you know, you've really got the, the attitude and the story to tell of you know, the kind of 
the motivational and the inspirational stuff to say what this is all about and the business of Formula One. So I enjoy communicating to there, there, there are so many companies out there that have events, but they've always got there's a reason for having that event. Mm. So is it a sales conference? Do they need motivating or are they just there as a get together networking? They want a relief from the past year because it's been a nightmare. So they want to have a laugh. So there are all these elements. And you can sometimes package it all up and just say, hey, listen, I think I know what you guys need. There's a bit of that, bit of that. We'll have a laugh at the same time. We'll get these messages over. So, and that's taken me all over the world. I've done 1,500 appearances now. Wow. Yeah. And I've still got more words left, Rach. That's amazing how you haven't run out of things to say, Perry. (laughs) Yeah. Sarcasm's the lowest form of wit, Rachel. <laughs> I'm all over that wit. I'm all over it. <laughs> it's it's been interesting, even in this conversation. You know, hearing some of the the stories about fighting your way through to get your seat in F1 and the struggles with when things don't quite go to plan, and then moving forward in different parts of your career. There's a lot of metaphors that can be shared across other aspects of life, aren't there? And certainly in the realms of business. And you know, you've you've shared some some wonderful anecdotes in this chat with regards to you know having that vision and striving for it and pushing forward and yes that works in a motorsport environment in a racing car but goodness me you know that's powerful stuff as well for anyone that's trying to push even their own business or their own position in a company for sales so do you find you get those sort of comments from people after these events where people say god you know what you've you've kind of shown me a perspective in a slightly different light there somehow relating to cars rather than you know selling printers or whatever it might be that people are there to sell um, yeah i think that you know sometimes you can have a large company and they mm-hmm. may have quite an inspirational leader or, or founder or whatever but sometimes people just like hearing something from somebody else yeah mm-hmm. now, I, i'm not kidding john if you were over here and if i, I were telling my kids uh, and i say kids 34 33 and 27 now you know <laughs> if i was telling them something they might be going like that Mm. if you told them the same thing they'd be going oh yeah okay john thanks very much you know so it's sometimes it's coming from somebody else i think that the the story uh i do think the story has got some key interest points you know no racing oil rigs coming in quick coming through f1 book stick so i think there are some key moments which really kind of land with audiences in many different countries so i'm very fortunate with that Mm. but it's a question of how you stir the mix up Mm. and what you put into it but principally what you're identifying before it but it's but it's just to always realize for me personally that there are other people out there sometimes that have got their own story and they're trying they've got a vision and they're trying they may be having some setbacks whether they're within the sales team or within the management team or the marketing team or whatever Mm. and it's maybe just even if they pick up one in 10 things that has happened to me and think, oh, do you know what? Actually, that struck a chord. Because nobody's ever going to agree or adopt the 10 or 20 things or whatever I'm saying all the way through. You're out there to create a mood. Yeah, You're out there to show. And that's really, I never go out there saying, you need to run your business like this. Absolutely no way. But what I do do is, exactly as you just brought up, make those connections to just say, we've got shared vision here, or we've got shared history, mm-hmm. or we've got stuff that we've had to overcome. Um, 
And then when I start boring myself, throw a load of gags in. That's <laughs> <laughs> my secret. Um, and your book, I believe in the middle of December, you're also bringing out an audio book, which I love this idea. Thanks, Rachel. Um, actually, I, I brought the audio book out a while back, but we put it on such a small little platform mm. that nobody got to hear about it. So because I've been so terribly busy with the team and appearances and all this kind of stuff, I've only just got around to now going with all the other platforms. So pretty much that will be fully available um, as from like mid-December, maybe early January. Perfect. You know? Fantastic. And is this a book so, that you voiced it yourself? I did, yeah. How yeah, did you find yeah, that? Because I've spoken to a few people that have written books and some have tried to voice them themselves and gone, I can't do it. I can't read my own words. Did you? Did it come quite naturally for you? It, it it did, except the first chapter. Please forgive me for those who are listening to it. I do end up sounding a little bit like yeah. Michael Caine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now suddenly I had it in my mind that being a Cockney, maybe the Americans might think Cockney is quite cute. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I might have overdone it in the first chapter. <laughs> That's what I do when I go to America. I'm like, I'm from England. I know the Queen. Yeah. I do that all the time. I love it. Actually, Rachel, I can believe you do know the Queen. You know, John, we, we Rachel and I met uh, when I was uh, I did a bit of a comeback into again just grabbing the opportunity yeah. was the European Rallycross Championship, yes, the uh, Titans. Yes, it Titans. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Rachel's out there making everybody laugh and happy. So it was a, again, that was what a great environment that yeah. was, wasn't it? That was so good. I think, yeah. and then. And then we had lockdown, didn't we? I think, was it lockdown? Yeah, we did then, 2020. But do you know, so I was, you know, talking about these drivers, there were quite a few of them I didn't know, like the world champion, mm. world rallycross champion was out there, and the guy who was second the Hansons, in the yeah. The Hansons, yeah. you know. And they were the first people to come over, and they said, uh, you know, Perry, you must do this, and you're us turning like this, it's not single seater, you know. It's like, it's something like Kimmy. I, yeah. <laughs> I just love listening to Kimmy on the television. It's no problem. <laughs> like this, you know? But they were really friendly. Yeah. Like that. yeah. And that was, and it created a great environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they weren't laying awake late at night wondering if I was going to beat them. Trust me. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But no, it was a I great I, I did get, I actually did get closer to them on times, you know, but, um, <laughs> but their level, of, their level of skill and experience, it was mm. just great to be around it. Yeah. And we just had, we all, me, Andy Jordan, Abby, of course, Abby Eaton, yes, and, yeah. and Ollie, Ollie was, was out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Ollie Webb. Great guys, great people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Lovely time racing against great people. Yeah. Fantastic fun. Great yeah. stuff. Now, before we wrap things up, I feel like we, we could lose many hours just, just talking and talking, it's, and it's fascinating. I'm sure this won't be the, uh, the the one and only conversation we end up having with you, Perry. I'm, I'm sure as time goes on, we'll, we'll find an opportunity to get back together and perhaps, yeah, talk at an event or, or record more podcasts together um but just with regards to the driving and um thinking back to the f1 cars you were driving the le mans cars you were driving do you ever get the opportunity these days to still have a seat in the cars with things like festival of speed or revival do you still get enjoyment out of driving no no, no and i don't i don't really even want to do it okay. um it's it's funny you know i if i'm at an event on something and maybe if life has taken me to a circuit and I end up standing next to an F1 car or something like that, I kind of, um, I'm uncomfortable. Okay. I really am. Because uh, I've got this internal dialogue going on is that years ago, no matter what the car, um, and, you know, 
take this or leave it, but I'm telling you how I feel, mm. is that no matter what the car, I would stand next to that car and just, for me, know that I could instantly get in it, mm-hmm. be strapped down, and you, Carl, you are coming with me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It might be a bit of a fight, but you're coming with me. Um, now, I've not been, apart from our rallycross jaunt, which was pure fun, yeah. I've not really been active now since I got badly injured in 2004. Um, which kind of ended my career, mm. and and kind of you you're not a, you're not completely switched on to that level of confidence anymore. Mm. So I stand next to that same car, and that car looks at me now and says, "Don't even think about getting in because mm. yeah. I'll kill you," you know. Mm. And the car looks at me and says, "I'm so much faster than you can drive me now," and I know it's saying that to me, mm. you know, because I used to have the same conversation back to that car. For those of you who think I've completely lost my mind, you may be right, but that is exactly yeah. what goes on inside my head and my yeah, heart. You yeah, know? And and the other thing was, and I don't wish to sound morbid here, but if you all want to know the truth, is that if anything had happened to me on the way trying to get to the top, trying to get to Formula One and hopefully trying to become world champion or whatever, if, as we've seen, there'd been terrible injury or if there had been kind of as in good night and good luck, as in not around anymore, mm. um, it, it wouldn't have been ideal. But it was trying to get somewhere. It was trying to do the big, big thing. So I had always had that in my mind that that could happen. But when I was in the car, it didn't really bother me. It was like, it's whatever it takes. But outside the car, it was that dream that really kind of the risks involved especially when you're driving some of the stuff I was, is that the risks involved, you almost self-justified those to say, I'm trying to get to the absolute top. Mm. Now, the only thing is for me personally, and there's a lot of people go out in racing cars and enjoy driving those racing cars, but there's nothing at the end of it now. So I kind of, I can't justify how I would be Mm. inside a car. Yeah. Because... There's a lot of people who drive racing cars, but there's very few racing drivers. And if I got in one of these things, and I'm not talking about the rallycross, which was a laugh, you know, I would expect to be fast. Yeah. And But the problem is, I know what I'm talking about. So I know what I'd have to do before I got in that car to be fast. The level of commitment that'd be necessary that would keep me happy to be fast. And I'm not willing to give up that part of my life anymore because there's no in that part of my life there's no end goal mm. to be world champion anymore got you yeah whereas i've got quite a few other goals in life that is taking my time and that level of determination you can rearrange those words into any order you want and send them back to me as an answer <laughs> no i like no, it it, makes sense it does make well. sense it does yeah. make sense i think there's there's a lot to be said for having that chapter of your life being the significant chapter. It happened, yeah. it was great, yeah. but things have moved on, life has moved on. And in fact, I, I can recall um, producing a, a conversation with um, Damon Hill, funnily enough, who who gave a very similar answer in, in that, you know, these days he doesn't, he's not really that fussed about driving. He's not really that fussed about attending the revival events and, and other events and trying to set fast times. He's done that. And now he's much happier, as you probably know, on a bike or on a surfboard. <laughs> Actually, me and Damon did a kart race a couple of weeks ago. Did you? And, um, 
yeah, so we clearly, of course, got slightly competitive against each other. Yeah. He, was, he was he was still on it, I tell you. you but, know? but who was faster? Sorry? But who was faster? I could, couldn't possibly tell you that. <laughs> we'll put that in the next book. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. Well, Perry, this has been really, really fantastic. Yeah. And thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. As I say, I am confident that our paths will cross again mm. and we'll be uh, there'll be more opportunities for us to... Um, stand between each other with a microphone and, and share stories and anecdotes and um yeah if people want to find out more about you if perhaps there's somebody listening that's thinking yeah i want perry to come and talk at our christmas dinner or you know spring summer function where do they uh, where do they go to find you oh thank you it's um well perrymccarthy.co.uk so so um yeah um Always enjoy uh, inquiries if somebody's got a, a real good project, a big event happening. So um, always look forward to speaking. In the meantime, though, it's been lovely speaking to you guys. John, thanks for having me on. Rachel, thanks for having me on. And lovely to see you again. Yes, always lovely to see you. Really, really is. And I promise we are going to stay in touch. I promise. <laughs> You're rubbish at staying in touch. That's <laughs> fine. I'll just, I'll turn up. I know. Tell you what. Uh, the Rat Pack Christmas lunch. There we go. <laughs> Just I'll invited be there. yourself. Yeah, done. I'm I'm not sharing you with that lot. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're my friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah you great too. To see you. Thank you so much, Thanks. Harry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. There we go. That was our chat with Perry McCarthy. That was really lovely. Yeah. I really, really, really enjoyed that. Really inspiring as well. Like, I love the fact that he's not been afraid to just go for it and and also not self-conscious because if I was you know at a race aware that I've had to work on an oil rig and the people around me haven't and you know have have probably had a, a much easier journey to get the funding to be there I'd probably be a little bit mm. peeved and I think yeah, that's just yeah. that's not a good way to be but that's my makeup I think that's mm. kind of how I am so yeah it's a, got a fantastic mindset yeah really really yeah, great insight and outlook on on life. I wanted to say because I was thinking throughout our recording. There's first, there's a couple of different points that I wanted to just bring up uh, for you, dear listener, and that is I referenced it in the conversation. The fact that we have um, certainly by accident, it's a happy accident. We've managed to talk to so many of the vital ingredients to BBC Top Gear. Uh, we have spoken to Clarkson, Hammond and May. We have spoken to Andy Willman. We've spoken to Richard Porter. We've spoken to Brian Klein. All of these conversations you can hear back in our entire back catalogue. So if you have a search back, if you've enjoyed today's conversation and getting that little snippet into the world of Top Gear in that era, there is plenty more where that came from with different conversations, some of them hosted by myself, some by me and Amy, some by Andy. Um, And this latest conversation just adds to that great Mm -hmm. chat. Uh, The other chat I was thinking back to as well with the the kind of some of the philosophical, uh, deep and meaningful thoughts that Perry was coming up with there is the conversation that you and I had, Rachel, with Steve Soper yes. back earlier in this year, around June this year. We mm. spoke to Steve. Lovely um, man. Really, really lovely yeah. man. And again, racing in a similar sort of era, yeah, actually, of to Perry. Yes. So yeah. same sort of economic conditions yeah. and having to kind of go out and back yourself as a, as a driver to get sponsorship, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, if you've enjoyed this mm. conversation, I have a... A strong recommendation that you'll probably enjoy the Steve Soper episode as well. You can find that in our back catalogue of previous episodes. But it's also worth saying there's a new one of these every single week. I think since we started doing this podcast in 2020, summer 2020, we've only missed about 
two or three weeks of wow. episodes in that time. So Great there work. is absolutely loads and loads and loads of conversations for you to catch up on. Have a look at the back catalogue. You can see it either on the podcast apps that you're listening to this one on, or if you go to our website, drivenchat.com, you'll see the entire back catalogue there hosted by Acast, and you'll be able to scroll through and take your pick and either download and enjoy them then and there or, or save them for later. Um, what I'm trying to say is there's more to listen to, there's more to enjoy. And thank you is the other thing. Thank you so much mm. um, f- to everyone that's listening. We we see the download figures. We can see now that we are um, in a, a stratospheric number of, of downloads now, which is just absolutely amazing. It's great to to know that people are listening and enjoying it. And we still get the occasional message from people as well, just to tell us that you've enjoyed the episodes and you enjoy listening. And that means the absolute world to us. Mm. So thank you to everyone that takes the time to um, to message or, or even occasionally come up to us in person at, at events that's um that's one of the best feelings in the world so yeah, yeah. thank you to everyone that's yeah. enjoying it uh, if you want to leave us a lovely review please do feel free it does help us apple Podcasts, you can do that or if you're listening on any of the other podcast apps if you've got the opportunity to leave a review please do or at the very least just hit that subscribe button because uh, that does wonderful things for us in the charts and algorithms and things that i don't understand i'll never <laughs> understand and i will never claim to understand but somehow it matters it does you did not sound like an old man then. Do not ever think <laughs> <laughs> you sounded old. Do the thing with the computer that makes me better. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's it for us. Um, we will be back next week uh, with another episode, uh, just as we have been for the past two years. Gosh, we are... No stopping us, is there, Rach? No, absolutely no stopping us now. Ain't no stopping us now. That's what I was looking for. Ain't no stopping us now. <laughs> yeah, I got there. Um, yes next week it's going to be a conversation with myself and amy shaw and we're going to be joined by goodwood royalty i will say james wood who has been fantastic and a great racing driver has driven more cars up the goodwood festival speed hill than i think most people have driven in their life Uh, so that will undoubtedly be a fantastic conversation to enjoy as well Uh, for now we'll say thank you so much for listening I'll remind you politely that we do have a website with loads of other bits and pieces for you to enjoy on, including written articles and photographs and videos and all of the podcasts, drivenchat.com if you want to go and see everything we do. It's all hosted there. And our YouTube channel as well, which is always worth a little plug because we do do some quite exciting things there. We've recently been driving some cool cars, Audi R8, rear-wheel drive, uh minis we've done a back-to-back test with the mini john cooper works and a mini e uh we've just got loads loads and loads and loads of stuff if you like cars and watching cars on a screen then go to the driven chat youtube channel and enjoy that as well beautiful was that fairly plugged i i I think you definitely plugged a little bit yeah yeah teeny tiny bit good yeah good good right well thanks for listening you've made it this far to the end that's a, an accolade <laughs> that's a miracle yeah, well done it is a miracle yeah uh, tell us if you have so, uh, leave us a message yeah, on uh, on our last instagram post uh and what should we what should we ask people to say made it to the end made it to the end please do <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for listening speak to you again next week bye the driven chat podcast in association with paramex digital you dream it we bring it to life Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end and it's john markar here again reminding you that this podcast the driven chat podcast has now run its course and has come to an end to find the new format search the driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps thanks bye <laughs>